You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee Church, visit vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's this week's message. Do you ever wonder if you are good enough? Maybe you work really hard to try to come across like you're good enough, or even work really hard to convince yourself that you're good enough, but deep down really feel like you just aren't? And if you're kind of asking, what do you mean, Rebecca, uh, do I feel like I'm good enough? What, like I'm smart enough or cool enough or successful enough or gifted enough? Uh, what do you mean by good enough? I think the deeper question beneath even those questions that we have is, am I good enough for God? Am I good enough to receive his unconditional love? Am I good enough to be fully accepted by him just the way I am today? You know, last week we started talking about identity. Who am I? How do I discover who I am? And I talked about discovering who you are rather than in the mirror, like our culture would teach us, but actually finding out who I am uh, standing before the throne. And I hope those of you who are part of our church community have been enjoying the book, You Are the Beloved. Um, That book was sent to you as an opportunity to just daily be reminded about who we are as we're diving deep into this whole idea of our identity. But today I wanted to talk to you about what I think is the greatest um, really enemy or attack on our, on our identity, and that is the issue of shame. And shame is this kind of uniquely painful experience where we feel like there's something about us that makes us unworthy of love and belonging. And this experience of shame is really what manifests in the sense of not being good enough. That deep down we fear that we aren't actually even good enough for God. And then it comes across in all these ways that we aren't good enough in our job or that we're just not good enough in the world somehow. And, so, and this is really a very universal human experience. And we try hard to manage our shame in numerous ways. Uh, We adjust and work hard to present ourselves to the world in a way uh, that would help us to receive responses from others that will affirm that in some way uh, we are good enough. Um, At the same time, if we receive responses that, that speak to this deep down fear that we really aren't, we can just spiral down from those responses. And we make these adjustments to kind of morph into the acceptable person for whatever group we're with. If we're with our work friends or um, our church friends or we're with our family, we may kind of adjust and re- you know respond um, in different ways to be more acceptable to the crowd that we're with. And because we're so uh, insecure and constantly questioning whether we are good enough, um, you know, we're, we're constantly reaching into our culture, into the world around us to grasp a hold of something that would reflect back to us that we are so that we can somehow evade that deeply painful experience of not being good enough, which translates into shame, which translates into not worthy of love and belonging. And at the deepest level, the fear that we aren't worthy of love and belonging from God himself. And I used to think that this ultimate fear of rejection um, 
was something, this, this fear that somehow my sins would actually separate me from the love of God, that he wouldn't love and accept me unless I became acceptable in some way. I thought this was kind of a uniquely Christian experience. And, you know, I grew up in a church uh, that was birthed out of the holiness movement. And so there was a large focus on personal salvation and personal sin management. And so I grew up with this belief that my, um, my very acceptance by God, my, my ability to be loved by God was based on my performance, was based on me appropriately managing my sin. And man, that is some, that's just a losing battle, right? That's just some heavy bondage to be in. And that was so much, so much a part of my formation that uh, I grew up often just feeling like God was disappointed in me, that he was angry at me, that he was distant from me because I was never good enough for him. And so this experience, you know, that you have fallen from the grace of God is just, uh, can be a pretty big obstacle to wanting to share your faith in Jesus, your life with Jesus with other people. Because if you feel like you're living under this bondage of constantly trying to perform your way into God's good graces, well, why would you want to invite other people into that bondage? How does that uh, translate into good news for people? And the truth is, what I've actually come to discover is that actually everybody feels this way to some degree or another. That unless you have a severe personality disorder or you're a sociopath, that everybody has this, ex this experience of shame, that there's actually something deep down kind of wrong with them. And so people that actually don't even believe in God or don't even believe that there is something called sin um, walk around with this sense of condemnation that they just can't quite shake. They too hear the same voices that we hear that you're a fraud or uh, you're a coward or you just aren't good enough. Uh, writer uh, Franz um, Kafka said, the state we find ourselves in is sinful, quite independent of guilt. And what he meant by that is, since our modern culture, as I talked about last week, uh, teaches us to kind of carry our own moral compass, that we just decide for ourselves what right or wrong is or what being a decent human being is. We just kind of, whatever our best self is, our own sense of our truest self is. And so as a result of that, uh, we're not supposed to feel guilty. And yet we have this strange experience of... Um, finding ourselves um, sinful, but actually rejecting this idea of feeling any kind of guilt. And so what happens is we have to work really hard to justify our behavior and deflect those yucky feelings of guilt. But the truth is, whether someone acknowledges God or acknowledges sin, people still actually feel sinful. People actually still feel guilty. They still feel bad. Shame is universal, but there really is only one solution to our shame, and his name is Jesus. I want to start with a story that many of you are probably familiar with. It's a really well-known story in the Bible, and it's found in John um, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. So let's just read that together. 
It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When, he, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. This woman was dragged into the temple courts to be publicly condemned and humiliated and punished. And in a matter of minutes, Jesus gives her a new name, forgiven, and he set her free. This is the good news that we are invited to share, that we don't have to receive our identity from the constant stones being thrown at us. We don't receive our identity from the sins we've committed or have been committed against us. And we don't receive our identity from our accuser who tells us over and over again that we aren't good enough. Just like Jesus did for this woman, he silences the accusations and he removes our shame by saying to us, neither do I condemn you. You are forgiven. And then we are set free to live into this true identity as the forgiven one. It says in verses 10 through 11, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You notice here that Jesus doesn't say, uh, First, now go and stop sinning, and then I will not condemn you. He says, you are not condemned. I am not holding your sins against you. Your true identity is not what they are saying about you, and it's not even what you think about yourself. It's what I say about you. You are forgiven. You are made new. I want more for you. Now go and live into the life that I see for you. A life of wholeness, a life of peace and fullness, the true you that you were made to be. And so we are invited likewise to live out of this identity, to live out of our forgiveness, not try to live for it, not try to live to earn it. That day in the temple courts, Jesus removed the woman's shame with his presence and the power of his words. And then soon after that, Jesus removed our shame with his life and the power of his death. 
Our shame was removed completely and forever, and we are invited to live out of the identity that was purchased for us on the cross. You are forgiven. I believe this is the most foundational truth regarding our identity in Christ. I believe at the core of every human being, there is this struggle with fear and shame, and the only solution is Jesus on the cross. Because the truth is, only he makes us good enough. We all walk around feeling bad because, frankly, we are. We can't make ourselves good enough, and we sure try. This is precisely the reason that the religious leaders, these very Pharisees that drugged this woman out in the temple courts, hated Jesus so much because he saw right through them, and they knew it. He held a mirror up to their face, and they didn't like what they saw. I mean, that's why throwing stones at other people is so, uh, so easy to do. It's a great way to deceive ourselves, to deflect from our own sin. We'll point out somebody else's sin. Let me maximize your sin so I can minimize mine. Notice any stones being thrown lately over social media? For those of you in my generation, uh, if you notice any stones being tossed around on Facebook in the last few months, and the reality is, even if we, uh, you know, kind of got over the social media thing and, and, and found ourselves not throwing stones publicly over social media, I think most of us can admit that occasionally we throw stones in our heart. That is just such a natural way to deflect from the shame of our own sin by throwing stones at other people. And often we do this to the people closest to us. Often we do this to our own brothers and sisters in the church. And one of the primary reasons we do this, as I said, is because it's so painful to look honestly at ourselves. And, and this is painful because many of us feel ashamed. And we are ashamed because we don't fully believe that we are forgiven, that that, are, that is our identity. We are forgiven. We are not fully living into this true identity that we have in Christ. If, it, if I'm honest with you, it has taken most of my adult life to start to slowly live into this reality that I am forgiven, that my sins are not held against me, that I, that, that I am not condemned, that nothing separates me from the love of God. And through all that formation that taught me otherwise, God has just been patiently taking off layer and layer of my shame so more and more of his perfect love can be poured into my heart. In fact, very recently, I had this kind of rather profound encounter. Um, for those of you who've been around for a while, you know we've talked about this program called Faith Walking, which is now called Emotionally Focused. And Dave and I and several members of our church have been through it. And in the program, um, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, you reflect on experiences or messages you've received in your childhood um, and discover the meaning that you put on those. And then you form these kind of vows as a way of protecting you um, that shape the way you show up in the world. And one of my vows was this very thing, to be good enough. Because this was a way to try to stay safe or try to get my needs met, to be good enough. Well, it becomes a negative vow because it, out of a result of that is, all kinds of insecurities and 
and broken tendencies and, and integrity gaps that are formed out of these, neg these negative vows. And so part of the process of healing is to turn that around into a positive vow, to have God lead you to a positive vow so that you can show up differently in the world as your true whole self. And I was really having a hard time discovering what the positive vow would be. Uh, if the negative vow was, I will be good enough, is the positive vow, I will be myself, um, is the positive vow, I will accept my limitations. I, I couldn't get to it. And I just remember just sitting there putting my, my head in my hands and I just asked God, like, can you show this to me, God? What's at the root of this, this struggle to always feel like I'm not good enough and that I have to do everything I can to be good enough. Lord, what is the positive vow? And I heard this so clearly, straight from God's mouth into my mind. He said, you are forgiven. He didn't say, I forgive you or I don't hold your sins against you. He said, you, that's your identity. You are forgiven. Live out of that. And man, that hit me in a way that it I, I don't think it ever has. And I just sat there and wept. It just hit my heart in a whole new way. I've grown up hearing all this, but when you hear it straight from the Lord's mouth and he names that over you, that has set me free in a new way. And something just cracked open inside of me. And this... This is the good news of Jesus. This is the life of freedom from shame that we are actually inviting others into. We're not inviting them into shame. We're inviting them out of shame. Jesus didn't alleviate the woman's shame by minimizing her sin or, or explaining it away. Um, he calls sin, sin. He calls it what it is. And he reminded those around her that not a single one of you um, is without sin. Not a single one of you uh, are, are measuring up in some way. And he actually calls her to leave her life of sin and, and to live into a new kind of life. But what he does offer her to alleviate her shame is himself. And now I want to close with this. I wonder, after Jesus removes this woman's shame, he restores her dignity, he silences her accusers, and he invites her to live into a new kind of life, a new way of being. I wonder when she left there, if she found a community to support her into this new way of life, to remind her of her new identity in Jesus as someone who is not under condemnation, but someone who is forgiven. Some, uh, a community that would rather than throwing stones at her when she messes up would actually come alongside of her and uh, reminder of who she really is in Christ. Imagine yourself being in a part of a community where we are free to tell the truth, a place where we support each other to live out our true identity, where we're honest about the fact that we are in process, that we are forgiven, that we do have a new identity, but the reality is we're still living into that and we still are sinning while we're on this journey and while we're in process that we're on this journey toward wholeness together and none of us have arrived yet. Imagine being a part of a community where uh, when we stumble, there are people there to help us back up. And likewise, when they stumble, we're, we're there to help them back up, that we're journeying together. 
you know, a friend of mine from college, uh, Mary, used to go to um, AA Alcohol Anonymous meetings with her roommate. Mary herself is not an alcoholic, but she went to support her roommate who was nervous about going. And after a while, uh, her roommate got comfortable and didn't really need her to go anymore. But Mary continued to attend the meetings, and she was telling me about this one day. And I asked her why, why she went to these AA meetings, and she said, you know, actually, it just feels like church to me. It feels like my church. Mary had been um, not part of a church community for many years because she really had trouble finding a place where she felt like she could bring her whole self, that she would feel safe and accepted for who she is as she worked out um, her faith in a, in, in a place where she could be authentic and tell the truth. And she found that uh, among these people who were in recovery together. Because if any of you have been in the recovery world, you know uh, these people tell the truth. They tell it like it is. When they gather together in, their, in these meetings, there's no putting on a, a you know putting on your best self, right? You just come as you are, and as people are kind of tearfully um, sharing, you know where they've stumbled and 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 had a setback. You know they're surrounded by people that say, "I know I've been there," and offered grace and love and support, and likewise. People are celebrating something they've, they've overcome or a place of healing, then they celebrate those things together. And they just offer grace and love and celebration as a community. And she said, I feel like I can be myself there. She said, I feel God there. Listen, at Vineyard Milwaukee, we want to be that kind of community where we can tell the truth where there's no fear in being honest about where you are on your journey, where you're struggling, where you're challenged, where you're celebrating. We want to remind each other who we really are in Christ, that we are loved, that we are righteous, that we are forgiven. That is our true identity. That is what we are living out of. We have to counteract all the shame messages we are receiving from everywhere else. And so while we're acknowledging that we're in this lifelong process living into this truth of our identity, but that none of us has fully arrived. And so how can we do this? How can we cultivate that kind of trust, this this level of authenticity that that offers healing and support? One of the ways that we want to do it, especially right now when it's been so hard to connect in person and to gather in community, Uh, We want to invite you to consider being part of something we're calling Vineyard Milwaukee Circles. And a Vineyard Milwaukee Circle is just a smaller, more intimate gathering of three to four people of the same gender where you can get together virtually if you're more comfortable with that, if you're comfortable getting together in person somewhere or some hybrid model, but that you would get together on a regular basis for the purpose of this kind of mutual support of sharing each other's life becoming intimately involved in each other, and you gather together around God's word and prayer and practices and just walk the journey together step by step in a place where you can tell the truth, you can bring your full self, and we can remind each other on a regular basis of who we really are in Christ and support each other on living into that reality. And so these circles are something that if you've been part of our church for a while, you may know a few people already that live near you or you have some level of relationship with that you can say, hey, do you want to join, you know, form a circle together? Or if you're newer to our community or you don't have those relationships established yet, then um, I just encourage you the first Tuesday of every month, I'll be hosting a Zoom meeting 
where you can join and get to know other people interested in forming a circle. And we will just actually be practicing uh, the components of the circle together. So you can just be part of that for a while until you can kind of form your own circle out of that. And if you're a person who is actually just still uh, kind of checking out life with Jesus, you're still kind of exploring faith, uh, we want to invite you to, to join a discovery circle because everybody needs a safe place where they can honestly and authentically process what's really going on. And we want that, we want to be able to offer that to you as well. And so if you're interested in that, then um, email Dave and let him know because we are also forming something called Discovery Circles. And so, um, you know, this kind of vulnerability, this kind of honesty is so countercultural, where we stop hiding from each other, where we stop living the shame narrative, and we live into the true narrative of who we are in Jesus, where we receive everything he accomplished for us on the cross. This will not happen. These kinds of relationships and authenticity within community will not happen without some intentionality, without you taking some risks, to get real and vulnerable and share your life with other people. And so I think this is one of the reasons that so many followers of Jesus, the people who are supposed to embody the good news that we have been set free from our shame, um, actually struggle with this as much as the world does. I think it's because we fail to remind each other the truth of who we are in the context of authentic community. And this kind of community is not formed by just people gathering once in a while and being really nice to each other. We need each other on this journey toward wholeness, and we have to commit and invest on a regular basis into each other's lives. So join me February 2nd if you want to take a step in this direction, which is the next time I'll be holding one of these um, Zoom meetings where you can meet other people and talk to me more about joining a Vineyard Milwaukee Circle. I'll also be sending something in the mail that kind of gives you a little more description about what your gathering might look like. You know, there was only one person in the crowd when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law dragged that woman caught caught in adultery into into the crowd. There was only one person there that was without sin. And his name is Jesus. And as we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't have to throw stones at each other to deflect from our own shame. And even if we're bruised by the stones thrown at us, they do not have to define us. When we have given our life to Jesus, he looks at us and he says, you can't be condemned because you are forgiven.